0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come and look at your word. We ask you to show us what you would have us to see from this. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 25. Got my Bible this week, so we can actually get going. Starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites, and prophesy against them. And say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God, Because you said, Aha, against my sanctuary, when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel, when it was desolate, and because and against the house of Judah, when they went into captivity, behold, therefore, I will deliver you to them, to the men of the east for possession, that they shall set their palaces in you and make their dwellings in you, and they shall eat your fruit and they shall drink your milk. And I will make Rabath a stable for camels and the Amorites a crouching place for flocks. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Thus saith the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with in your heart with all your, your despite against the land of Israel. Behold, therefore, I will stretch out my hand upon you and will deliver you from the spoil to, for a spoil to the heathen, and I will cut off from the people, and I will cause you to perish out of the countries, I will destroy you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So we're going to look at this. Uh, the Amorites, which we started talking about this last week, uh, the Amorites are the, are the children of Ammon, and they are the, and that was the name of the son of Lot's youngest daughter. And if you remember that story in in Genesis 19, after Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed and Lot, his wife, and his two daughters had left the city. And remember, Lot's wife looked back. She became a a pillar of salt. And Lot became so terrified of everything from that point that he went up into the mountains and he was not planning to ever come back down into civilization again. And the two daughters, his, his two daughters decided that, well, dad's never going down into civilization again. We need to do something. And they decided, and in their, in their plan was to get him drunk. And the oldest one lay with him one night, and then, and then they got him drunk a second night, and his younger daughter laid with him. They got a Lot drunk. A lot drunk. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Ammon is the name of the, daughter, of the youngest daughter's son. And if you look at the map I gave you, they're really there in that kind of purplish pink color, whatever color that is. That's the land of Ammon. So technically and theoretically, Ammon is related to Israel, kind of about a roundabout way, because remember that Lot is the nephew of Abraham. So Ammon is a cousin of the children of Israel. And so they were there. And remember in the book of, numbers when Israel was coming up this east side they were not allowed to attack Moab they were not allowed to attack Ammon you know they were told to just leave them alone because they were family <laughs> and they also weren't allowed to attack Edom so all those places on the on the southwest part of your map were not allowed to be attacked by Israel when they came out of Egypt 40 years later and so now God's saying now I'm going to bring judgment on them because of their attitude. And we look at their attitude here. In verse 3 it says, Thus saith the Ammon, hear the word of the Lord. Th- thus saith the Lord God, Because you said, Aha, against my sanctuary. And Aha is kind of, when you see this in the Old Testament, it's kind of like, ah, you know, it's not even just Aha. It is, you know, you got what you deserved. You know, you deserve what you got or whatever. They, they rejoiced in this activity. Well, that's just, that's just joy. Huh? malicious joy. It's that I'm happy. And this is something we have to be careful of as ourselves is we do not want to take pleasure and joy in somebody else's discomfort, even if they deserve it. We really, even if they deserve it, our heart as Christians should really be more broken when somebody suffers, even if they're deserving it. You know, this person has been a really bad person. They deserve it our hearts should be somewhat broken. It shouldn't be, oh great look of that time they got what they got you know deserved and here Ammon is you know number one, Israel didn't necessarily deserve it, but you know God is saying you you rejoiced in my the harming of my my people, and what did they say this about his sanctuary when it was profaned? God's sanctuary was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, all right, and this is right this time, we're right at this time where these people are going into. Captivity and his, his sanctuary has been number one. It's been profaned many times over the years. The Jews have even profaned, the sanctuary. And if you read, if you read uh, the books of First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, it's all about the history of Israel. There are many times when some of these good kings would come to power, and they would spend months cleaning the garbage out of the out of the tabernacle, out of the temple, because it had been in disuse and it became a junk collection place not a junkyard necessarily but they just piled all the junk and refuse and you know this chair is broken this table is broken we don't really want to get to of it we're going to we're going to fix it someday and just stuff it in the stuff it in the temple and there was many times when his the temple was profaned where people were gotten so evil that they weren't using the temple especially not for worshiping god but not, they just kind of used it for junk it's kind of like if you go into Europe and throughout Europe right now, many of the great cathedrals and, and churches are either laying idle or they've been sold off and no longer being used as churches. And it's kind of a sad thing when you look at it. Churches, like the, the, the cathedral that Charles Spurgeon preached in, drawing tens of thousands of people into his services or sitting there with nobody in it on a Sunday yeah and it's very sad when you look at it, and you know, we see this even in America sometimes some of the big churches that that came and went and you look and nobody's in them anymore, and sometimes they're just sold out outright and this has happened in the in Israel as well that times it means basically they 've left left God behind, and God has written Ichabod on the church 's door, and Ichabod means the glory of God is departed it 's a uh, a rough place to be and you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a church where it seems like the glory of God has departed. I, I went to a couple of them in my visits of different places where it's like, wow, you guys need God in this church. And we see this over and over. And he says, because you have rejoiced in this, you, when, my, when my temple was profaned, and against the land of Israel when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. In other words, they rejoiced. You know, You guys are, about time this has happened to you and all that stuff. And again, we want to be careful with this because God takes it pretty serious when we don't have uh, compassion for others, even if they deserve it. Because number one, how many times do we deserve much worse than we get? And we want to have people to give us compassion when we do it. And then yet we look at people we don't like or that we've had problems with and we try to go, oh, wow, great thing that they happened. I had somebody do this to me one time when I was in in, the, in my past. I had a owner of a company who really mistreated me, and I worked for another guy. and He's going, and he came in. And he was all, "Well, you'll really love this. This is what happened to him." And I'm going, "It doesn't make me happy at all. You know, he's lost everything. That doesn't make me happy." And one side of me is like, "Oh, good, he deserved it." But you know, it really at the same time, it was, "No, it's does That's not something that makes me happy. I'm not glad that he." that he suffered, because he had a family. Which means, if he suffered, his family suffered. And we look at this and say, they're judged because of their attitude. Verse 4, Behold, therefore, I will deliver you to the men of the East for a possession. Now, the men of the East is a kind of an idiom. It means the nomadic tribes that wandered all over uh, Saudi Arabia and the the Middle East, to the eastern side of the Jordan. They were kind of wild, nomadic, uh, pretty vicious. And he says, I'm going to deliver you to the nomadic tribes. It's kind of an interesting place because Ammon is a stationary place. And he says, I'm going to give you to the nomadic tribes, which means they're just going to come live there for a short time and go someplace else. And he says, you're going to be their possession. They shall set their palaces in you and in their dwellings in you. They shall eat your fruit and they shall drink your milk. In other words, he's saying you're going to be totally destroyed. Same thing when the children entered into the promised land. They said you're going to eat food that you did, did not plant and did not har, you know, that you did not harvest. You did not plant the orchards. You did not plant the vineyards, and yet you're going to eat their fruit. So it's, it's a, again, it's an idiomatic description of victory. Uh, Ammon, you're going to be destroyed. These nomads are going to eat your fruit, they're going to eat your of your orchards. They're going to drink your milk. They're going to take your take your animals, everything, and basically they're going to you're going to cease to exist because of their coming in. And that's pretty interesting that nomadic tribes are going to do this to them, not some not the Babylonians coming in to destroy them, which is what you would have expected because Babylon is taking over the territory at this point. But he says these nomadic tribes are going to be your downfall. It says I will make. Rabbah, a stable for camels. Rabbah is the capital of Ammon. You can see it. Rabbath Ammon in, the, in your picture of your map. It was the capital. So, so your capital is going to be a stable for camels. In other words, a resting place. You know, we're going to, They're going to camp out in your capital. And when you lose your capital of a, of a country, that's a pretty serious event. You can pretty much plan on losing any of your other, other places. But when you lose your capital, It's a big deal. And it says, And the Ammonites a crouching place for their flocks or a resting place. And you shall know that I am the Lord. You know, God says this over and over in Ezekiel. It goes, You all have been making fun of my people. You've been rejoicing in their downfall. You've been misbehaving. And Ammon should have known how to behave because, again, they're from the line of Abraham, uh, even though it's kind of a fuzzy line through the, through the uh, incest and all of that, but you know, and they're cousins to them, but they still should know what it means to follow God. And yet, God says, "You don't. You don't know what you're what you're doing and how you're doing it, and you don't know you're not following Me. And I'm going to do this so that you will know that I am God. God moves against people often to show that He is the strength." He has done it through sending in enemies. He has done it through earthquakes and fire and storms, and any number of things that can happen. You know, and this is something we are seeing a lot more of activity right now. We're seeing a lot more earthquakes in Mexico. It's not too uncommon for an earthquake, but but uh, we're seeing a lot of earthquakes. We're seeing a lot of big storms. You know, bigger storms than normal. We're seeing a lot of tornadoes and act, act, those kind of activities and places where tornadoes never exist and we're starting to see a lot bigger tornadoes. And I personally will agree with those other pastors that are taking a stance. A lot of this is from God saying, pay attention. Because it's not just our country. It is all over the world. And people are. God is trying to say, pay attention. And being rejected and those who will say it get laughed at and made fun of. But you know what? I truly believe that this is God saying, Pay attention. Pay attention. All through history, God is moved oftentimes by storms and activities. Uh, and so it doesn't surprise me. He, can, he has the full capacity to do these things. And as we watch the intensity increase, it's going to be interesting to see what, where this world is headed to. Will they come to God or will they continue to turn away from God? unfortunately i think they're going to continue to head away from god i think we're at the end times and i believe we're going to see the days of noah where everybody does what's right in their own eyes and we're already starting to see that and the church and our prayers and our activity is what's keeping things from being worse than they are right now because we're restraining we go and fight against the different things the world is trying to do and we're losing the battle but if we weren't here Imagine how bad things would be if the church wasn't here saying, no, that's wrong, that's, you can't do that. We, we seem to be losing the battle overall, which is pretty much what we're going to see from the scriptures. But, you know, we can turn it around. It can be turned around if the church will just pick up with God. Because we're no worse than, the, than we were in the days of Rome. Matter of fact, we're not even as bad yet as the days of Rome were. And the church turned Rome upside down. So we are not beyond saving this world for another period of time I just not sure that we have much time left so I don't put a lot of faith in the fact that we we have a great revival we'll see pockets of revival but I'm looking forward I want to see revival I want to see revival in our town I want to see revival in our county our state I want to see God do great things and it's they need to pay attention and listen to God so we look at this, he says in verse six, thus saith the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced in the heart with all your, all your despite against the land of Israel. And this is a clause, but he's saying basically you sang and danced. You know, you, you know this is a picture of great rejoicing. You now the guy's jumping up and down, clapping his hands. And you know, this was, is this was the, the people you see in the, the stands at a, at a sporting event when, they're, when their team just does a great thing. They get excited, and they're, they're rejoicing, jumping up and down, clapping their hands, dancing, you know, dancing the jig, whatever. And he says, because you've done this. <laughs> you know, and you think about this. How strange would that be that they're that excited that Israel has suffered a little bit? Well, the indirect relatives, cousins. Yeah. You know, we're talking, the, at the point that we're at, at this, at this time, we're talking about a thousand years since, the, no. since it happened, give or take a you know, little bit. I mean, so it's been, these aren't close, close relatives. God, from his perspective, says, these are your cousins, don't touch them when Israel comes in. And then we go another, you know, 500 years after this, and we're going, okay, or a thousand years, and God's saying, okay, now they deserve to be Punished, you know. But it does show you how patient is God. You know, we really have to start understanding the patience of God. From creation to 1,500 years after creation, man kept getting more and more wicked until God sent a flood, and it basically said that man was so wicked he did what was right in his own eyes, and every imagination of his heart was evil. And then God destroyed the world. Then he goes for for a long time before Sodom is destroyed. And we're talking probably six, 700 years before Sodom is destroyed. We're looking at a period of probably 1, 000, you know, 800 years before the, the Holy Land has been wicked enough for God to say, okay, you know, they've, been, they've been sitting here for 430 years not listening to me. Now Israel, you go in and you destroy them. We come along, you know, we keep coming along and how patient has God been since the flood? Well, we've been looking at close to 5,000 years or you know, 4,500 years. And he still hasn't destroyed mankind, even though we deserve it. How patient is God? And people will go, well, God just uh, you know, allows so much bad things. He's, basically, there's the old saying, he's given them enough rope to hang themselves. Okay, people, how bad are you going to get before you, before you just decide that I'm going to have to destroy you? And it's coming. You know, how close it is, I don't know. I don't know how much more evil the world can become before it's doing everything in, that it wants to and, and every imagination of their heart is evil. We're pretty darn close to every imagination of people's hearts being evil. We're very close to them doing what's right in their own eyes. And that brings judgment. Small remnant holding, holding things together because God says, if my people shall humble themselves and call upon my name, I, I will save. When, when God was going to destroy Sodom, you know, Abraham goes, well, will you kill it for 100? Will you kill him if there was, a, you know, 50? Will you kill him if there's, you know, and he went down to 10. And, do you, you know, does anybody remember, we've discussed, why did he stop, why did Abraham stop at 10? That's how many was in Lot's family. He was sure that Lot was doing at least his own family would be righteous. And there wasn't even enough in Lot's family. Revival is even possible. Revival is always possible because, as I said, we are not as bad as Rome yet, and Rome was turned upside down. Rome was bad. Rome, especially toward the end, Rome was homosexuality was rampant in Rome, especially at its end. uh, Fornication, uh, uh, bestiality, pedophilia—everything was rampant in Rome—and yet Rome. Was turned around by Christianity, so there's always hope. I don't place a lot of hope because I think we're awfully close to the end times. But there's always hope. Right now, there's a great revival going on in China. There's a great revival going on in Africa. There's a lot of African nations that are being turned to God, uh, just as Islam is really taking up, you know, taking over in the Middle East and. And Europe, uh, there is a move of God that's moving the other direction in other places. So we're seeing God move. God is never totally still. Now, will these revivals be long-lasting? I don't know. We'll have to see. The really sad thing in all of this, do you know that America is the number one place for receiving missionaries, Christian missionaries in the world right now? from other countries coming to America. We get more missionaries than any other country, more than we're even sending out now. And we used to be the number one sending missionary. It's kind of interesting, we've got Christian churches on every corner of most towns, and we're having missionaries come from foreign countries because they see how bad a shape the American Christian church is in. And it's kind of a sad thing, but you know, it's good in on one side, but it's also sad that we're the one receiving so many missionaries exactly. now. Our government's secular, our school's secular, and unfortunately a very large percent of the Christian churches are secular. And I know Africa also. Oh, Africa's sending lots of them to us. We used to go there. Yeah, we used to go to Africa and now Africa and a lot of the Korea is sending missionaries out like crazy, South Korea. Uh, Verse 7, after all their great uh, rejoicing, he says, Behold, therefore I will stretch out my hand upon you and will deliver you for a spoil to the heathen. I will cut off and cut you off from the people and I will cause you to perish out of the countries. I will destroy you and you will know that I am the Lord. You rejoiced against my people. I'm going to. I'm stretching out my hand, and I'm going to use the other people to do this. And he already said he's using the the wild people, the nomads, <laughs> to, to destroy them, and to take them and cause them to perish. And he says, I will destroy you. And he says, cause you to perish. People don't don't know of a country named Ammon today in, in the Middle East. All right, verse eight. Thus saith the Lord God against Moab and Seir to say, uh, because the, let me try this again. Thus saith the Lord God, because that Moab and Seir do say, behold, the house of Judah is like unto the heathen. Therefore, behold, I will open the side of Moab from the cities, from his cities, which are on his frontiers, the glory of the country, Beth Jesimoth, Beth uh, baal me on to the men of the east with the Amorites, and I will give them in possession that, are, that the Amorites may not be remembered among the nations. I will execute judgment upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord God. Okay, so Moab, if you look in on your map, is just south of Ammon, uh, in that orangish, orangish colored part on your map. And Moab is the son of the eldest daughter of Lot. Okay. And she was the one that got conceived first, and she gave birth to Moab. So again, this is a cousin people to Israel. And God says in verse 8, because Moab and Seir do say, Behold, the house of Judah is likened to all the heathen. In other words, they're getting what they deserve. They rejected God and they're getting what they deserved, which is kind of a kind of a correct statement. <laughs> Israel got what they deserved, but God was saying, "Don't rejoice in it." And it says, "Be therefore, behold, I will open the side of Moab from the cities." And we picture this. This is a very strong picture. He says, "Opening their side, cutting them open, exposing them." You know, if you want to, if you were to have your side split, you would be in a lot of pain. Number one. And a lot of infection, and it would, would be open. And, and it's a very strong side. He says, I'm going to open your side to the enemies. From his cities, which are your frontiers. And he gives three major cities of their day. None of them show up on our, on our map. Let's see. Yeah, none of them are showing up on this map because it's too, too far out. But he's saying, I'm going to open your, open your side. And these are major cities. He says, from the glory of these countries and he gives three cities and you know one of them literally means the house of destruction and the other one means the Lord of the Lord of habitation and so he says you know I'm going to open you up these guys that think they're important these big cities I'm going to take your cities out and he says I will execute judgment in upon Moab and they shall know that I am the Lord your God okay again he's saying I'm going to show you that I'm God and this is, we've, we've talked about this many times. This seems to be one of Ezekiel, anyway,'s favorite sto- statements. And you will know that I am the Lord your God. And Ezekiel is a prophet that talks a lot about destruction. And he's also going to talk a little bit about the end times for Israel and the world. You know, but he is a very apocalyptic uh, prophet. He's talking about Judgment. He's going to be talking here in a couple chapters about Tyre. And in the middle of the discussion of Tyre, he starts talking about Satan. And we'll get to that. It's one of our, he's one of our ones that we know a lot about Satan from because he does quite a bit of talking about Satan and the fall of Satan. So when we get there, we'll bring that, we'll bring that out. And then we'll do a little bit of study about Satan. Pretty much everything he's saying is still coming from the Lord. It's not nothing... Well, anything written in the scriptures is coming from God through, through the individual that w- writes yes, it. Right. But when we read in the scripture, God speaks to them and they end up putting their little flavor, their little twist on, on what it is, which is why sometimes you look at it and you say, this person wrote this because it isn't that their mind went totally out, out to lunch when God gave them, gave them what to write. Uh, I've shared this, when you're, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody or you're, you're, you're uh, witnessing, sometimes you kind of step back and you realize you're not the one really talking. God is speaking through you, but it's still your words. It's your language. It's, it's pretty much what you would say, usually only better, <laughs> at least in my case. They were, they were prophets. A prophet means literally one who speaks for God. So they were taught how to read the scriptures. They were taught to listen to God. And it's the same thing with pastors. You hear pastors, and every pastor is slightly different, but you still hear God's word being spoken from them. Not, not scripture necessarily, but you should hear. If they're a good pastor, you're hearing God's word, even though you're hearing it with their words, their language, their... their I spin may not be quite the right word, but I'm trying to get the right attitude, and it's hard. To, hard. I don't totally disappear just because God speaks through me. Okay? My personality will still come through. The words that I would use are most likely going to be what is being used. It'll just be a better version of anything that I can come up with because God is speaking, speaking. Same thing with these prophets. Did every single word that they ever spoke get written in the, into the Bible? Absolutely not. Just certain portions of what they've said got put in. Paul, all those letters we have from Paul. You, know, you read a letter from Paul and you go, that's a letter from Paul. You know, there's only a handful that don't really seem to be Pauline letters, but you go, oh, okay. Look at this language. Look at the construction. Look on the look at the very poor grammar with the run-on sentences that Paul uses. You know, where he'll write 12 12 uh, what we have verses. You know, 12 verses, and it'll all be one sentence. He's very hard to teach from at times because you you'd like to go to an end of a sentence. You go, I just can't go to the end of the sentence and be able to talk about this because the end of the sentence is three pages from now. Hard to understand because of his personality came through, whereas you read somebody like Peter, a fisherman. Nothing, no, not taken away from what he says, but it's a much simpler language that he uses. John, the youngest of them, uses very simple language, which is why a lot of people like the writings of John. Very simple, easy to, to follow. He went with uh, Paul, Paul and Barnabas on the first journey, and he, he, le- he left during the first journey, and when they got ready to go on the second journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark, and Paul said, absolutely not, I'm not taking that loser with me. Basically, it's exactly what he said. And Barnabas is going to say, well, I, he deserves a second chance, so Barnabas went with Mark, and Paul took Silas. Took Silas. So we ended up with two teams, and then later on, Paul finally forgave Mark, and Said he was really worth. he yeah, was really worth it. He redeemed himself and you know and did things that Paul was willing to say. Okay. I never within the Bible what it was he. Uh, I mean, it was really, really, really about it. Typical new Christian, young Christian. Uh, you know, things get really hard. I'm going to go run away from what God's asking me to do. And so Paul said, "No, I'm not taking him because he ran away once. So what's, he, you know, when we hit the next hard spot, what's he going to do? Run, run? You know, Paul's going. I, you know, Paul would probably be saying, you know, hey, I've been stoned, I've been beat, you know, and he, he ran away from all of this stuff. I don't want to. I don't want him with us. He had a legitimate beef. Yeah. He had what he considered a legitimate beef. Oh, yeah. He could, you know, he's a loser. He ran off on me. I'm not. I'm not giving him another chance to run off with from me in the middle of a." You know, how can you trust him again? And, and Barnabas, uh, who is named son of encouragement, said, I think, I think we're going to take him. Saul, I like, took my chances with you, and look how you worked out. I think, I, wanted, I think we should give him a chance. And it was so severe that they just actually, that Barnabas and Paul, split. And God says, you know, all things work together for good. So what came out of this? Two missionary teams. Now, it probably should have still been better with one, with, the, with them going out, but God used Paul's obstinance. I wonder how much that happens in a modern setting. All the time. Sometimes when you see a church split, it's a terrible thing. Because it breaks, it breaks up a good church and, and makes people take sides. And usually, the side that breaks off that are attacking the pastor, they start a church. And you watch those churches, and they keep splitting. They started for the wrong reason, because they broke off by not being able to support a pastor. And then they never support a pastor thereafter. And it's usually the same guy that instigates the, the breaking of the church. Is there times for churches to split into two churches and grow? Sometimes, yes. But we want to be very careful. Don't be splitting a church because you're disagreeing with the leadership. Because I don't like the color of that carpet. I'm not... I've heard of those ones. I have not I've been in any. Been... I don't like the color. You guys decided to paint the outside of the church. And the next thing you know, the church is splitting. Now those are really silly but you know it's even sillier is sometimes we break the split churches over doctrinal issues that have real no that really have no bearing no real bearing you know it's one thing to say okay like the Lutheran and the Presbyterian churches both recently had splits over ordaining homosexual pastors now there's a reason to split away from your denomination when you're going to go against the Bible it's time to pull up, pull out of that, and they and they have pulled out and started their own their own groups. There is time when you say I can't support that decision, but even when that happens, what you want to do is just say, "Okay, I, God, where you know, where am I going to church now?" And just leave that church quietly. And I've heard people be well, about the bad teaching. I go, "Well, God will take everybody that he's that's his followers out of a church with bad teaching, and they'll be left with what they deserve. Those who don't." care about God's word, and God will write Ichabod over the door of the church, and it'll die. But, you know, we don't need to be going against it, because when God deals with authority, he puts authority in, and he says, this is my authority. In the book of Jude, when was combating with Lucifer, or Satan, over the body of Jesus, says, the Lord rebuke you. He did not even take authority now that Lucifer is no longer the archangel. But even he would not say, by the power of my position, I, I go against you. Because he knows that Lucifer was in that position. And as far as God's concerned, when you, even if you don't deserve it, you're still, because why? That leader will answer for all their decisions and why they took people the wrong direction. God told me to do this. The Lord rebukes you and took the body away. So instead of saying, I would the Lord. Right, even though his position now was in that. David, when he was anointed king, would not go against Saul because Saul was the anointed king, even though David was anointed. David, David in one sense, had every right, humanly speaking, to grab up open army and, and attack Saul and take Saul out of the picture, but he goes, no. God anointed him. Until God takes him out of the picture, I'm not going to do any more than defend himself. He went to battle. Lots of battles with Saul, but they were all him defending. And David David was the leader. David had the right and could have taken Saul out completely at any time. David was a better general, better leader, had more people that supported him and could have taken Saul out at any time. And yet he would not because he's saying God anointed him; he's the leader until God takes him out. He had many ways.
1: Took a oh, he had many chances too. To
0: Most people do not have that much respect for the for the authority of that God has put in their place. And like Jonathan, Jonathan lost oh, because. And Jonathan was willing to give up his position for David. Yes. That's how much honor he had. Now the only way it could happen was for him to die. But he was he was willing to give it up. He was willing to see David become king. It's too bad they couldn't save Jonathan. Yeah. They saved his family. You now one one child one child out of it. People will worship anything idols and quit worshiping God. That's what it's showing, and God's giving them their punishment what they deserve I guess -hmm. but but the thing about this whole leadership activity uh, I was at a church one time when I was adamantly opposed against a non-doctrinal issue from from the pastor and God convicted me one time it was a Baptist Church so we had a business meeting and I stood up and I very strongly went against what he was trying to do I represented actually represented about 40 to 45 percent of the church but God convicted me so bad (laughs) that I had to go to the pastor later on and I had to go, you know what, I am sorry that I s- stood up and said this thing, oh, but it's your right as a as a member of this church. I go, no, you don't understand. God says, do not touch God's anointed. I go, between you and me, you are wrong. But you're the one that has to answer to God for this decision, not me. So I will never stand up in public and say anything else against against this decision. But between you and me, you are wrong. It's a very bad decision. It's not it's not, it's not a very strong biblical stance. And from that point on, I never said another word against it. I still to this day believe he was wrong. And I saw the detriment that was caused to the church in some ways and from what he did. Uh, the church ended up splitting over the issue. But it wasn't because I led the split. It was, that believe, I, One of those things, I believe that God moved that split of the church because of the direction that they were trying to go. And again, it wasn't anything that was a strongly anti-biblical. It was just one of those things where this is not right. It's not right. Now, very important is, now if I thought it was a really, really big deal, then I would have just said, "Okay, God, you're moving me on, help me find another church. And I would have never said anything to anybody in that church about why I left. I left another church because of certain things that I saw going on. And I had one guy come up, why did you leave the church? I go, God led me away. He goes, well, you can tell me I'm a friend. I go, show me that in the Bible. You show me where I should be able to tell you why I started going to another church just because you're a friend, and we'll talk. But until you can show it to me in the Bible, it's between me and God why I left. Uh, And this is something that's very important. God's authority is his authority. When you have a family. The husband is in charge of the family biblically. Now that doesn't mean he, you know, pushes down his wife and doesn't listen to her and all of this. He, you know, a good husband will listen to his wife because she is the help me- meet for him. You know, she knows and sees things that he may never notice. But ultimately he's going to be the one that makes the decision and he's the one that when he stands before God and for the family, God's gonna say, uh, Mr., Mr. Head of the family, why did you do <laughs> this? and he will have to give answer to God. The government officials will have to answer to God. Why did you make the decisions? Well, God, I just didn't believe. Well, it doesn't matter that you didn't believe me. You're now standing in front of me giving answer as what you did to a country that I gave you to take care of. Pastors will have to answer for where we lead our churches. Very important for authorities to understand when you're submitted to an authority, and we're all submitted to some authority someplace, that is a covering for us. That doesn't mean we do illegal stuff, but you know, when, if they're not if they're not doing illegal things and we're staying under that covering, we're protected. The the body members who stay under the pastor who's leading maybe in a wrong direction and just keep serving God and, and being you know submitted will be covered by that. The wife who stays submitted to the to the husband, even though he's making dumb bad decisions, is protected by that submission. And the military is a great place where it's supposed to happen. I don't know if it still does, but if a sergeant tells you to do something and a lieutenant comes along and tells you to do something else, you obey, this, you obey the last command that you're given. You might even, But you will mention, well, sergeant so-and-so told me to do this. Well, I'm telling you to do something else. As long as you're doing a lawful comm- <laughs> command, you're covered by being submitted. And the power of submission is very liberating on one side, because it's an umbrella that covers you and protects you. And here, David wouldn't do it. Uh, Gabriel wouldn't, wouldn't come against <laughs> when she, Lucifer. So be very sure that, where, that you're submitted and doing what you're supposed to do. And we're all submitted. We're all submitted to our government, supposedly, <laughs> even though they're starting to make some bad decisions. And at, when we get to a place where they make a decision that is very contrary to the Bible, and we decide to obey God, it, just as the apostle said, we ought to obey God rather than man. If you make that stance, be ready to take the punishment, because the government still has the permission and the right to punish you for, to, for disobeying them, even though you're standing for God. And the disciples are a great example of that. They preached Jesus' name when they were told not to, and they were beat and put into prison. And they didn't complain, well, you're not allowed to do that, we're obeying God. They just said we've got to obey God rather than man. And if you want to beat us, you want to put it, you want to make us suffer. Then we're willing to take that punishment. If you step out from under the authority you're supposed to be submitted, you better be sure that you're doing it for the right reasons, because there's consequences for stepping out from under that submission. And there will come a time when we will have to say, God says. God says, I have to do this. So therefore, if you decide you want to punish me for, not, for doing what God says, punish me. And take it just as, just as the other disciples did. Thank God we're worthy of suffering for Christ. Not that they wanted to, but they're going, we're going to obey God. And that has a repercussion that says punishment. All right, verse 12. Thus saith the Lord God, because that Edom hath dealt against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and hath greatly offended, and avenged revenged himself upon them, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand upon Edom, and will cut off man and beast from it, and I will make it desolate from Taman, and they of Dekdan shall fall by the sword, and I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to mine anger and according to my fury, and they shall know that my vengeance saith the Lord God. So Edom is down there at the very bottom portion of your map, right under Moab. Edom is another name for Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. So you're getting a history lesson here. You're getting a genealogy history lesson here today. And... So, Esau was the one that God rejected. And remember, Esau is the elder brother between Jacob and Esau, because they were twins that Jacob, uh, that uh, Israel had. Uh, he would be Joseph's uncle. Uncle, I mean, uncle, yeah. He's the uncle. He's the uncle to the tribes of Israel. Yeah. Oh. So he's a little closer relative than the cousins because the. Uh, Moab and Ammon are cousins, very distant cousins because they're going to have to go through Abraham, up to Abraham's father and back down again to to be related. So this, Moab's a much closer relative to them. Again, we're talking 500 years, I mean, so we're not talking about, you know, but Moab represents a much closer relation. This is one of Abraham's direct descendants. Huh? Edom. And it's, Edom the other name for Edom is Esau. Esau was known as, as Edom as well. And this be, you'd find his history in Genesis 36. Uh, it talks about his, his families and, and who builds this area up. So again, we're talking about family. And he says, you know, because Edom have dealt against the house with vengeance and taking great offense and revenged himself, he says, I will stretch out my hand. So obviously, Edom has been attacking Israel during this period of time. And we'll see, if you go through some of the history, you'll see Edom attacking them. And God says, okay, I've had enough of you too. <laughs> you know, I've had enough of you too. I'm sending my, my people into to captivity. And now I'm going to start dealing with the rest of you. And it says, I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of the people of Israel. And they, and they shall do to Edom according to my anger and according to my fury that they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord. And so we see all of these people, all these people that have been the enemies of Israel for generations now. During, during that period when they were going in, they weren't allowed to touch these three nations. But these three nations rewarded that, that kindness by being the uh, thorn in the flesh to Israel. They kept attacking them. They kept harassing their borders. Verse 15, therefore thus saith the Lord God, because the Philistines have dealt by revenge and have taken revenge and with despiteful heart to destroy it for the old hatred. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will stretch out my hand upon the Philistines. I will cut off the Cherishim Thims and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. And I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Philistia and Philistia is on the left side of your map. It's the only one that's on the western part. It's up against the, the Mediterranean Sea in the south portion there. It's a kind of a purplish color like uh, Ammon. And if you know the, the Philistines, they're, they've been the perpetual enemy of Israel for a long time. They've been, even during Abraham's day, they were a, a bad place to go. They weren't a good place for them to be around. Uh, we have Saul battling the Philistines all the time. We've got uh, they were we see them being battled all the time. The Philistines, literally, the word Philistines means sea people or uh, in immigrants. They were they were not from this area. It is believed that they are descendant from the Cretes uh, in, a, in a long long direction, and they were a very valiant people. Okay, when he refers to the Sherathims, those were mercenary soldiers. They were executioners. Uh, they were. There's a belief that David had a bodyguard made up of these people. Can't imagine him having Philistines in his bodyguard, but that's what some people believe. They were sea-going people. They were very, very at home in the sea almost as almost as much as the Phoenicians which are to the northern part of this map that we see on the on the Mediterranean, so they were very much at home on the sea they were very militant, they were very uh, warlike and they're always fighting against israel through David's time through the through the uh, judges times the the Philistines show up frequently and uh, he says because you have dealt with revenge and taken vengeance with a despiteful heart and other to destroy the old, it for the old hatred. You know, they were constantly at battle with, with Israel and very violent, very strong in their battles. And it says in verse 17, I will greatly execute vengeance upon you with a furious rebukes and they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. So kind of going fast on some of these people because it's pretty much the same thing. You guys made life difficult for Israel. Now I am tired of it and I'm going to deal with you. You, you harmed my people. The, Abraham was told that those that curse you will be cursed. Those who bless you will be cursed. Uh, blessed. All these nations basically were cursing Israel and God says, okay, I've had it. I'm, I'm dealing with my people because of their disobedience, but now I'm going to deal with you the way I promised Abraham I would. If you curse Abraham and his descendants, I will curse you. And even to this day, when people do things that hurt Israel, nations do things that hurt Israel, they receive bad things in retaliation. And there's many people that have tracked down things that the United States has done to hurt Israel and then looked. You know, and six months later, a year later, two years later, this happened in America. And it is still true. You bless Israel, you get blessed. You curse Israel, you get cursed. God is not done with the nation of Israel. Don't ever listen to any teacher out there that says, God has rejected Israel because they rejected Jesus and put the church in their place. That is not true. It is true that for almost 2,000 years, God has been dealing with the church, and Israel has been put on the back burner. But Israel is in their country again. They're starting to bring their people home. And the world is starting to go against Israel, and puts us at the end time. Israel is the timepiece of all of the future, future activities that are going to happen in, this, in our eschatology, which means study of end times. Israel is the center of it. And Israel is going to build the third te- the temple again. They're going to start sacrifices. They will, during the millennial kingdom, be the headquarters and where the world is reign- ruled out of. They have a great place still to go. It is the place where the 144 uh, missionaries at the end day will be chosen out of, and they will go and evangelize the, the world for the Messiah. They, they will be the center. All attention will be focused on them. And it's amazing for little tiny country that it is, how much attention is focused on them today, and we're not at the end times yet. How many laws and and rebukes has the UN given against Israel? The only true democracy in the Middle East, the only true stable country in the Middle East, and yet they have hundreds of resolutions against them. Because Satan is trying to destroy them. Why is he trying to destroy Israel? And we've gone be over this. If he can destroy Israel, then he stops the prophecies of God from being fulfilled. So Satan is very active in trying to destroy Israel. He can't destroy it. God's not going to let it happen. But he's been trying. He's been trying to do it forever. Hitler and all these other different people that tried to wipe out the Jews. In the Middle Middle Ages, people trying to wipe out the Jews. since Jesus Christ, he's been trying to wipe them out so that he can stop the prophecies. Before Jesus was born, he, Satan was trying to kill Israel off because then he could stop the Messiah from being born. Okay? We had many places trying to destroy the Jews so that, so that Jesus would never be born. Because if he could have killed off the, the children of Israel, then the seed of Abraham would have been destroyed and there wouldn't have been a Messiah. Satan hates Israel almost as much as he hates people in general. He hates Israel because Israel represents all the promises of God. So he keeps trying to destroy Israel so he can try to stop God's word from coming true. God won't allow it. It'll never happen. There will always be a remnant of Jews to be dealt with. But Satan has tried very hard to get rid of them, And so we see this over and over again. And when God moves to defend his people, he moves harshly. Even for us as Christians, when God moves to defend us, he goes, OK, this person has crossed the line in your life. Don't, re- don't rejoice when that person suffers. Because we should be heartbroken that they're suffering. Because this just one more time. But why, why are they suffering? Because God is trying to show, I am the Lord your God you know, even though you're not recognizing me, I am your Lord. Our country has fallen so far away from God that God is going to shake this country up pretty quick, whether it's from a foreign invasion, but there'll be a lot of other stuff first. And I believe much of the storms that we're going through, much of the upheaval we're going through is God saying, I am the Lord, your God, are you going to follow me? This is where your wrong decisions are leading the violence that we're seeing in our, in our cities because people are making the wrong decisions that aren't godly on both sides. You know, Trump got a lot of flack for it, but both sides of these issues are wrong. Neither one are dealing godly with the other, with the other side, and we're seeing great violence. And it's only gonna escalate until people decide to see God in the midst of it and quit trying to do things their way and let God be victorious and let God be the one that brings the people together because only God can bring two opposing sides together, and, and because you have to be willing to give up your rights. And when both sides are willing to give up their rights, you end up getting what you want in the long run, in most cases. You get peace. But you both get ready to say, I want, I want it what God wants. Not peace that says, OK, I lost everything. This is the problem with compromise. I hate compromises. Because in compromise, no, nobody wins. You both lose. You go, well, I won here. No, but you lost here, here, and here. I am a firm believer that when God brings you in, you all win. You all win because God will bring what's most important to each person, and you will win the most important things, and you'll concentrate on on what was won, not not the little things you had to give up. And my problem solving in all my lifetime in, in business has been, I want everybody to win. I don't, want anybody to, I don't want anybody thinking they lost. They, they, they walked away compromised. I, okay, I didn't, get, I didn't get. You're not going to get everything, but you should get enough that you feel happy that you've won. So I, I've always hated the word compromise, and God says Israel's going to win. His people are going to win because he's going to make sure that they win. Now, he may spank us in the woodshed behind the, be, after he's done telling them I'm going to make them win, but... He's going to say it's not for you guys to rejoice in that, in that discipline. Uh, my, my dad had a real big thing. If, we, if any of us kids got happy that somebody else got punished, they got punished as well. <laughs> you know? uh, and taught me some lessons. You don't rejoice in somebody else's misfortune. Even if they deserve it, you do not rejoice in their misfortune. You want to show grace and mercy to them. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your showing us that you do move against enemies, but also that we are not to rejoice when that moving happens. Help us to have compassionate care on those that may even even may deserve it. And even even when we, we are seeing and being disciplined or something they've done to us, that we should still have compassion for them because that you're moving against them and we don't want to see that. Lord, help us to be ready to see and help people as you move in this day, latter day as you moved against them in those days. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.